You know, they say soccer is the world's game. But the American poet Walt Whitman once said, I see great things in baseball. It's our game, the American game. You know, historians say that America has made three original contributions to the world. The Bill of Rights, jazz music, and baseball. Baseball is as American as apple pie and Chevrolet. It is indeed America's game. And in the spirit of Walt Whitman, I see great things in a baseball. This morning, I want to begin by drawing your attention to this leather sphere that I call a baseball. A baseball is nine and a quarter inches in circumference. It is two and seven-eighths inches in diameter, and it weighs five and a quarter ounces. A baseball contains a rubber core wrapped in tightly wound yarn covered in cowhide, and it's held together by 108 stitches, really and truly, always 108 stitches. But here's what's truly amazing. A baseball contains 121 yards of four-ply gray woolen yarn, 45 yards of three-ply white woolen yarn, 53 yards of three-ply gray woolen yarn, and 150 yards of cotton yarn. Stretch out the guts inside a baseball, and it extends 369 yards. That's 1,107 feet. That's nearly four football fields compacted into this baseball. A baseball is 1,100 feet of yarn packed in a nine-inch sphere, which perfectly describes our Easter text. For the scope of what Jesus Christ accomplished on earth stretches to eternity and spans all creation. His words and deeds will be the topic of all eternity. Their meaning will be forever explored and never exhausted. No one's life before or since has created such far-reaching ramifications as the life lived by Jesus Christ. And yet, like a baseball packed with yarn, one verse, Romans chapter 14, verse 9, sort of rolls up this amazing life and winds it tightly into a single statement. It's just 23 words, none of which are more than six letters. In verse 9 of Romans 14, the most remarkable life ever lived and its infinite implications gets compressed into a brief one-line summation. The Holy Spirit spoke it. The Apostle Paul wrote it. The reason God's Son came to earth, fulfilled the ancient prophecies, lived a sinless life, died on a Roman cross, then rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is coming again, is explained to us in Romans 14, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. All that Jesus said and did was to qualify himself as Lord. He died and he rose and he lives today to be king of creation, to be ruler of heaven and earth, to be boss of both time and eternity. Jesus is king of all kings and Lord of all lords. You know, given the vast contents of a baseball, you'd think the Atlanta Braves would never get shut out. 
I mean, how can you miss hitting 1,100 feet of yarn? And yet, our beloved bravos prove that you certainly can, especially if it's compacted and if it's approaching at you at 95 miles per hour. You can miss its miss hitting that baseball. And you can also miss out on the implications of our text. That's why this morning I'd like to slow things down a bit for us and focus on just this one verse. For here is a truth you need to knock out of the park. To this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord. You know, shortly after his birth, Jesus was paid a visit by foreign dignitaries. Matthew tells us that the wise guys, they rode into Jerusalem and they asked the Jewish authorities, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These mysterious magi were Persian priests. They'd probably been tutored by the Hebrew prophet Daniel. Daniel had predicted that a Messiah, a king, a deliverer would be born in the land of Israel. This king would rule the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus lived his whole life under the shadow of this and other Hebrew prophecies. In fact, shortly before his death, Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. On that day, they hailed him as their Messiah, as their king. You know, even in his death, Jesus' claim to royalty overshadowed all that he did. The plaque that Pilate nailed to the top of the cross said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Understand, Jesus didn't just come to earth to help and to heal, to bless and to better, to work miracles and show mercy. No, the Son of God was far more ambitious. Jesus came to earth to establish himself as king over this earth. Jesus came to rule the day. The Son of God is now the Lord of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And yet too many of our contemporaries today miss this point. Like Ozzy Albies waving at a slider on the outside corner. Folks today, even some so-called Christians, whiff at the reason Jesus died and rose and lived again. You know, most people think of Jesus as their own private tour guide through life that his job is to present us with various options so we can decide which direction we'd like to go. And then he safely helps us get around and makes us comfortable along the way. That's most people's impression. Folks don't mind being led around as long as they're in charge. But when somebody else sets the agenda and starts telling them what to do, that's when they want to get off the bus and find another tour guide. Hey, one thing is certain. The people alive in Jesus' day sure didn't miss this point. His enemies didn't whiff on his intentions. They knew exactly why Jesus came. From the outset of his ministry, Jesus was a threat to the powers that be. He challenged their authority. He set the agenda and marched to a different drummer. While on earth, Jesus shook up the status quo. You remember when he tossed the temple merchants out on their ear? He ran roughshod over legalism and ritualism. He exposed them for the straw boss that they were. He humiliated the religious scholars with his insightful answers to their stage to stump questions. You remember the day Jesus called the pompous Pharisees hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and snakes and sons of hell. Author Jim Gillis sums up the first century 
perception of Jesus of Nazareth. He writes, no man ever made more trouble than the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Realize Jesus didn't come to fit in. He came to take over. He didn't toe the line. He came to draw a line in the sand. Jesus came to be the boss of the neighborhood. And this is what made the establishment so uncomfortable. So much so they consorted with the Romans to plot his execution. Dorothy Sayers writes of Jesus, To those who knew him, he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. And officialdom felt that the established order of things would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quiet. In fact, when the executioners led Jesus to the hill called Calvary, you might have thought he was going away quietly. In reality, he had a final battle to fight. Jesus took on the fiercest fiends of darkness and triumphed over them all. Satan he crushed. Death he defeated. Hell he conquered. The grave he opened. And again, what was his motive? Listen to Paul's conclusion in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus rose from the dead to be Lord of every person in heaven and on earth and in hell. In Paul's New Testament letters, he refers to Jesus by an interesting title. The apostle calls him the last Adam. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he gave dominion or he gave the responsibility to rule to the first man, Adam. But the first Adam blew it. He bombed out. It was the first Adam bomb. Adam sinned, and he forfeited his God-given dominion. I've heard it said, the problem in the Garden of Eden wasn't the apple on the tree. It was the pear on the ground. In disobeying God, Adam and Eve asserted their own independence. They chose to be their own gods. Reminds me of the patient in the insane asylum. The psychiatrist asked him, he said, so, so you say you're Napoleon. I do. The doctor replied, but how do you know? Well, the patient bristled up. He answered dogmatically. He said, because God told me. That's when a voice down the hall shouted, I did not. <laughs> you know, it's sad, but there's a lot of supposedly sane folks today who live their lives as if they were their own God, their own Lord. They make their own decisions and call their own shots without ever consulting with the God who created them and knows what's best for them. They forget that all the problems in the world today started when a man and a woman made that very same choice. I once read about a family occupying a house in West Palm Beach, Florida. They gave permission to a television film crew to use their front yard as the backdrop for an episode of the television series, B.L. Stryker. Well, this series was an action-packed, cops and robbers, shoot it up kind of thing. And it was shortly, it wasn't very good apparently, turned out to be Burt Reynolds' swan song. But for this particular episode, the film crew set up in the front yard. 
And before long, cars were crashing in the driveway. The yard was blown up. The action had begun. When out of the blue, the owner of the home called from New York, asking what in the world was going on at his house. He had been tipped off by a neighbor. It turns out the folks who gave permission to use the house were not the actual owners after all, but merely the tenants. They had no right to allow the property to be destroyed. And this is what's happened to planet Earth. Humanity has forgotten that we're only tenants. We have no rights of our own. Our lives were paid for by the blood of Christ. We've been bought with a price. Jesus went to the cross to lay claim to you, to be Lord of your life. We have no right to rent out the yard or sell our soul for our own purpose without God's permission. And when Jesus came to earth, it was like the owner returning to that house in West Palm Beach. He wasn't pleased with what had occurred. Jesus cleaned house. And for three and a half years, he restored order in the neighborhood. You know, when the first Adam rebelled and went his own way, nature followed suit. Sin stained God's creation. Without her father God, mother nature went nuts. Even today, hurricanes bust up shorelines. Tornadoes ravage trailer parks. Babies are born with birth defects. Untreatable cancers torture innocent folks, even kids. You might say the front yard has been shot up and practically destroyed. The world today is not what the owner had in mind. It is a world of our own making. Don't blame it on God. The suffering that surrounds the pain we experience is a reminder of our own rebellion. Yet what the first Adam damaged, the last Adam came to repair and to redeem. When Jesus performed miracles, they were meant to prove that he had the strength to one day right all wrongs and to fix this broken world. When he manipulated the molecules and the bread and the fish to multiply rather than to decay, or when he cursed a fig tree, he showed his ability to alter the course of nature. When he calmed the storm or walked on water, he was proving his power to tame the chaos in nature. When he healed the sick and exhibited his mastery over disease, he was proving he had the cure for nature. Perhaps Jesus' greatest claim to lordship was his ability to forgive sins. Only God can issue pardons. C.S. Lewis once explained, he said, Jesus went about saying to people, I forgive your sins. Now, it's quite natural for a man to forgive something you do to him. Thus, if somebody cheats me out of $5, it's reasonable for me to say, I forgive him, and we will say no more about it. But what on earth do you say if somebody cheated you out of $5 and I said, that's okay, I forgive him? You see, a sin is an infraction against God. It's an assault on his authority. That's why only God can forgive sins. And this is where the Jews took great offense at Jesus. In Luke 7, they questioned him, who is this who even forgives sins? In other words, who does this guy think he is? Only God can do what he claims. And yet that was exactly Jesus' point. He was God. The last Adam took back the dominion that the first Adam had lost. 
The rightful owner of the universe had come to take back control over nature and disease and repair the broken relationship between God and man. Hey, Jesus even let it be known that he ruled over the spiritual realm. When angels appeared to give him aid, it was apparent he was Lord of heaven. When he cast out demons, could anyone doubt he was Lord over hell? And finally, when Jesus conquered the ultimate foe, when he escaped the sickle of the grim reaper and the corruption of death, he proved once and for all by his resurrection that he is not a man to be trifled with. He is Lord. Jesus is master of this universe. One night on a plane, airplane flight, the plane hit some strong turbulence. Lightning flash, it shook, it rocked the aircraft. In fact, the plane felt as if it was splitting apart at the seams. One frightened elderly lady, she happened to be sitting next to a pastor. She shook him. She said, please, can't you do something about this storm? The pastor responded and said, sorry, ma'am, but I'm in sales, not management. <laughs> hey, while on earth, Jesus demonstrated that he had taken over management, that he was king of all creation. This morning, Jesus wants you to acknowledge his lordship. He wants you to place your life under his management. Certainly, Jesus cares about our needs. He is a friend indeed, but he is not content to just be your friend, just be your buddy or your partner or your homie or the man upstairs or whatever it else you want to call him. Jesus will never be satisfied until he is your boss. Jesus is the boss. That doesn't mean, though, he's bossy. Jesus is in charge. That doesn't make him pushy. Jesus came to be king, but a different kind of king. He's a dictator, but Jesus is a benevolent dictator. He demands exclusive rights to every aspect of my life, but when I give it to him, he does all he can to build it up and to make it better and to fill it with blessing. Jesus is the commandant. He commands us, but he does so with love and gentleness and kindness. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus invites, he sends out an invitation to the burned out and to the stressed out and to the bummed out. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you been living under a heavy burden? Has your life become a load? Jesus invites us to come to him. He's gentle. He's able to help us find rest. And Jesus' instructions in Matthew 11 are so simple. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You know, a yoke was a wooden harness that interlocks two pairs of animals. It connects the animals to a plow. The farmer would use the yoke to steer his plow and to till up his field. What's interesting, though, is that the animals used were paired together in a novel manner. Usually a young ox was yoked to an older, stronger, mature ox. The yoke was designed to distribute most of the weight onto the older ox, while the younger ox basically went along for the ride. 
the full-grown ox carried the most of the burden, while the newbie learned to just stay in step and be submissive. You remember in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus was called the carpenter's son. That Greek word for carpenter, it implied a particular type. Not a framer, but a craftsman. Someone who built furniture or fashioned tools, even yokes. In fact, there's an ancient tradition that says Joseph's specialty were these animal harnesses, these yokes. Supposedly a sign hung above the door of his shop in Nazareth that read, the best fitting yokes made here. Even after Jesus left home, he was still crafting yokes. And this is Jesus' desire for you. To come to him is to accept his yoke. He requires us to harness ourselves to him. The person yoked to Jesus is no longer calling his own shots. He's no longer captain of his own ship. His goal is to stay yoked to Jesus and let Jesus lead. And yet here's what's so beautiful. Jesus relates to us in a way where most of the burden falls on him. The weight is on his shoulders. Our job is to simply stay in step. Don't resist the yoke. Don't spit out the bit. That becomes our job. In Matthew 11, Jesus calls himself gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, he expects us to remain harnessed to him, but he never sets a pace that we can't handle. He'll shift only enough weight onto us to make us stronger, to build muscle, not to cause our collapse. To know Jesus is to bow our stiff neck and accept his yoke. But once we do, he takes the pressure off us and he puts it on him. His yoke is always a perfect fit. In Matthew 12, verse 20, Jesus makes another statement that affirms that though he's the boss, he's not bossy. Jesus says of himself, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. In short, Jesus is no tyrant. Jesus is kind and he's gentle. He rules over our lives, but he does so with care. You know, the strategy of most earthly kings is to crush their subjects, keep them underfoot, rule them with a rod of iron. This was especially true of Roman empires and Little League umpires. Roman emperors and Little League umpires. And as a Little League coach, I had a few run-ins with umpires. Always offered to purchase them nice eyewear afterwards, though. Always. I cared about them driving a car home. It's dangerous to drive when you're blind as a bat. I always reminded them of that. But you know, I never failed. Whenever I got into an argument with an umpire, I lost. Because umpires like to flex their muscle. They like to put you in your place. I like to show you who's boss. They're quick to remind you that they have all the power. Yet to the contrary, Jesus is the one person with all the power who's never pushy with that power. He finds the bruised reed, the broken reed, the person who's been broken by this world. And rather than crush it, he props it up and supports it and nurses it back to health. He finds the dwindling embers. And rather than let them die out, he blows on them and rekindles a blaze. Jesus finds the person who's down for the count, and rather than bury them, he, live, he loves to lift them back up. See, the goal of Jesus is not to keep you in your place. It's to help you find a place where you can blossom and be fruitful. 
He wants to heal our hurts and elevate our status and share his glory with us and fuel us with his strength. He is the Lord who blesses, not suppresses. Jesus uses his power not to push us around, but to pick us up. He is a splint to the bruised reed. And he is a flint to the dwindling fire. The risen Lord Jesus comes to people who are bent over and he helps them stand tall again. He comes to the burned out and he rekindles in them a passion. In essence, Jesus comes and he says to us, I love you just as you are, but I love you too much to let you stay that way. Understand that as Lord, Jesus doesn't make or take suggestions. He's been around the block a time or two, and he knows what we need to live a joy-filled life. He's been changing lives for centuries, and he's smarter at it than we are. He knows how to take our lives and shape us and free us and make us better. Our job is to trust and obey. As the old hymn puts it, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Jesus doesn't need your suggestions. Our job is to stay in step with his will, stay yoked to him, harnessed to Jesus. Don't spit out the bit. Once a young Dutch soldier was stationed in the jungles of Indonesia. During his tour, he adopted an ape. This monkey became his pet and sort of the pet for the barracks. After a few weeks, though, the soldier noticed that whenever he touched the gibbon around the waist, it winced. It was in pain. Upon closer inspection, the soldier noticed a raised welt encircling the animal's midsection. Well, he pulled the hair apart, and he found the problem. Apparently, as a baby, someone had tied a piece of wire around the gibbon's waist. And as the ape had grown older, the wire had cut into his skin and had become embedded into his flesh. One night, the soldiers laid the monkey on the table, and they performed an operation. They shaved the ape around the waist, and then they slowly cut into his tender flesh. The efforts were obviously painful for the monkey, but he seemed to somehow understand. He just lay there patiently, believing the soldiers were acting in his best interests. When the wire was finally snipped and slid from the gibbon's skin, the ape jumped up and started dancing around on his owner's shoulders. From that moment onward, the soldiers and the monkey were inseparable friends. Later, this Dutch soldier, he said the experience had marked a turning point in his own life. At the time, he he wasn't a Christian, and he was deeply mired in a sinful lifestyle. I guess you could say he'd been monkeying around. A chain of guilt was squeezing him and cutting off his happiness. He longed to be free and joyous again. And after some serious thought, he surrendered his life to the will of Jesus. And the Lord performed heart surgery on him, cut away his flesh, prod out some harmful habits. It was painful, but the operation was necessary, and it released him from his sin so that he could dance again. Perhaps this morning you're looking for a similar release. You have a band of guilt that's choking the life out of you. Come to Jesus, friend. Lay your life at his feet. Let him snip that sin and set you free and set your feet to dancing again. He can do it. Jesus is the boss, but he is never bossy. 
A small boy was sitting in church with his mom as the pastor preached the sermon entitled, What is a Christian? Well, this pastor, he knew how to stir up the crowd. And as he spoke, the room built with intensity. Numerous times he would pound the pulpit and he would ask the question, Brethren, what is a Christian? Well, as the tension mounted, this little boy got scared. He whispered to his mom, he said, Do you know? Do do you know what a Christian is? His mom patted him on the knee and said, yes, dear, I know. Now sit there. Just be quiet. But the boy couldn't sit still. The passion in the room was too great. As the preacher kept preaching his sermon, his voice thundered, what is a Christian? This time, the little boy just couldn't stand it any longer. He jumped up and he shouted, tell him, mama, please tell him. (laughs) Well, this morning, it is my God-given responsibility to define for you a real Christian, and it's a simple task, for though the ramifications of it extend to the heavens, the reality of it can't be any clearer. A true Christian is a person who has accepted the yoke of the Lord Jesus. Have you harnessed yourself to the will of God? A blood-bought, forever-forgiven, heaven-bound Christian is the person who has turned the ultimate say in his life over to Jesus and has embraced him as Lord. Too many folks today strike out on this crucial truth. Jesus died and rose and he lives again to be Lord. Don't assume you're going to get to heaven because you walked the aisle as a child or signed some kind of membership, church membership card or just because you got baptized, or you took communion, or you went to some confessional, or you want a pen for church attendance, or you even asked Jesus to forgive you. Of course you should pray and ask for forgiveness. You just need to know, Jesus won't forgive who he doesn't control. He died and rose and lives today to be Lord. Baptist pastor Vance Havner once said, I came to Christ as a country boy. I didn't understand all the plan of salvation. But one thing I did understand, even as a lad, I understood that I was under new management. I belonged to Christ, and he was Lord. The reason for today's Easter celebration is the same reason Jesus came to earth, and he died on a Roman cross, and three days later, he rose from a borrowed grave, and it is the same reason he's coming again. It's not just to bless us, or to heal us, or even forgive us. He died and rose and lives again to be our Lord. Do you trust Jesus enough to yoke yourself to him and his will? Today, this Easter Sunday, will you embrace Jesus as your living Lord? I pray that you will.